Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 214, National Lampoon's Viking Vacation. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com, and it costs about the price of a pint per month. And thank you very much to Nancy, Brian, and Layla for signing up already. It's 872, and Half Dan's year has been a bit of a mixed bag. On the one hand, he'd received a major Dane Guild from Mercia, and he was able to add that to the one he received from Wessex in the previous year. And now he was hanging out in London, which isn't too bad. But on the other hand, he had just gotten word that his northern kingdom of Jorvik had exploded into rebellion, and now some guy named Rick Siga was claiming the title of king. And Halfdan's hand-picked puppets, the ones who were supposed to keep control of this region, so King Egbert and Archbishop Wolfrid, well, they were now running south, presumably in search of Halfdan's protection. And that does make a bit of sense. Local populations who are in rebellion are rarely forgiving or kind to collaborators. But this must have been a humiliating development for Halfdan, and also a stark lesson in how quickly his fortunes could turn in this rainy land. Earlier this year, he stood triumphant over the most powerful southern Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. He was ascendant. But nothing lasts forever. And now... Halfdan needed to seriously pull his shit together. Now, according to the Annals of Ulster, Halfdan, Guthrum, and their armies weren't the only Danes in Britain. We're told that Ivar the Boneless, Ubba, and Olaf the White were in northern Britain, kicking the bejesus out of Strathclyde. But if that is true, it was hardly the lifeline you might assume it was. I mean, even if Halfdan knew that his purported brothers were in the area... He probably also knew that asking for their support wasn't going to fly. They were busy. In fact, according to legend, they were busy dealing with St. Abba the Younger and her fellow nuns. And even if the story of Abba was pure myth, the bands of Abba and others were probably looking for slaves that they could sell in Dublin. There was money to be made in Strathclyde. But as for Jorvik, well, I doubt there was much profit in helping recapture it. I mean, it's not like Halfdan would let them loot the town and enslave the population after they took the town back. That would be bad business. So he really didn't have much that he could offer to entice the other bands to come help him out. Halfdan was on his own. So, the Danish army mobilized. Again. They packed up their loot. Again. They loaded up their weapons. Again. And this time, they made their way north which was probably much to the relief of the people of London. This whole experience would have been incredibly arduous for the Londoners. Archaeological finds from this period include a hoard of coins that were found while Waterloo Bridge was being constructed. And that hoard suggests that the local population were rushing to hide their wealth. And some never managed to come back for it. Now, we're not sure who the Londoners were hiding their money from specifically, they could have been trying to keep their coins from the Danes, but they might also have been trying to keep their coins from the tax collectors who were seeking payment for the Dane Guild. 
the sheer fact that we were able to find these coins suggests that whatever happened, things didn't end well for the person who buried them. And this is one of those areas of history where it's really tempting to try and add color to a very rough sketch. We know that the Danes were in London. We know that they left. We found coins that suggest that money was being hidden during this period. But as for what life was like within London during this time, we know pretty much nothing. It's tempting to import the worst aspects of stories that we've had from the last hundred years, and imagine that the city was a horror show of human rights violations and suffering. And that is usually the version that you're going to get from pop culture. But the truth is that we have no idea how the local citizens fared under these circumstances. In fact, economically, treating the local population as target practice would have been bad economics. The Danes were colonizers and slavers, so butchering large portions of the local population wouldn't have benefited them. On the other hand, not everything that people do is a response to their economic interests. Sometimes, in fact many times, people do things for reasons that have nothing to do with what is economically rational. So the truth is that London under Danish occupation might have been a horror show. Or it might have been relatively stable. Or it might have been something in the middle. We really don't know. All we do know is that the Danes took London. They stayed there for a while and were paid a Danegeld. At some point, people buried coins in London and never came back for them. And now, at the end of the occupation, at last, Halfdan and his army were leaving. But where were they going? Well, that was the big question for Halfdan. His men had rested over the winter, but they also had fought a long, hard campaign in Wessex and just finished a lengthy occupation, and I assume at least an initial fight and raid, in London. Charging north and launching into a war for Jorvik, and it would be a war that the Northumbrians were no doubt preparing for, wouldn't be all that popular of a choice for his men. Furthermore, Jorvik wasn't Halfdan's only possession. He had East Anglia to think about. And if Northumbria could rebel, there's no reason to think that East Anglia wouldn't be next. If he wasn't careful, 872 could be the year where the Danes lost both of their holdings. And if that happened, he would probably lose any chance at commanding another army. Viking raiders were what you would call results-oriented. If they had a slogan, it would be, What have you done for me lately? And the fact of the matter is, it was only last year that Halfdan got his people stuck in Reading after launching what was supposed to be an easy surprise attack in winter. And sure, they were paid a Danegeld at the end, and they were paid another at Mercia. But Halfdan's luck had been mixed right from the start, and following the loss of Jorvik, I suspect that he started to really worry about a mutiny. So how do you fix that? How do you look strong and victorious while also keeping your men from losing morale and trust? Well, Halfdan needed to pull off a miracle. He somehow needed to prepare to retake Jorvik while also ensuring that East Anglia didn't declare their independence. And he needed to do that while giving his men a chance to rest and resupply. That's a tall order. And if someone came to me and said, you need to retake one kingdom while cowing another kingdom, and you need to do it without fighting because your men are a bit f 
fucked up right now, I'd tell them to write Santa about it. And I don't know who the Viking version of Santa was, but Halfdan must have gotten a hold of him. He headed straight for Torxy, which was located in the former kingdom of Lindsay. Now, Torxy was well-situated. It sat next to the River Trent, as well as an old Roman canal that led to the River Witham. At Torxy, Halfdan and his forces had easy access to Jorvik, were close to East Anglia, and had quick escape routes to the sea if anything turned against them. There's a reason why Halfdan had managed to convince so many Vikingers to join his army. The guy was slick. The only real downside of Torxy was the fact that, as it was located in the old kingdom of Lindsay, and Lindsay had been absorbed into Mercia, Halfdan was still in Mercian territory, and he had recently promised Burgred that he'd leave these lands in exchange for a Danegeld. So that was a little awkward, but on the other hand, it was just Burgred. The truth of the matter is that from day one, Burgred had been telegraphing to the Danes that he wasn't really someone to be worried about. When the Danes invaded and occupied Snottingham, Burgred mustered an army. But rather than engaging in battle, he simply paid a Danegeld and went his way without even unsheathing his sword. When Halfdan raised an army and attacked Burgred's brothers-in-law, again, Mercia remained behind her walls unwilling to fight. When the Danes returned to Mercia and occupied London, once again, Burgred chose to pay a Danegeld rather than fighting. Burgred had spent about half a decade telling Halfdan exactly what sort of war leader he was. Namely, that he wasn't one. And that leads us to the dark side of Danegelds. While it is a mistake to assume that paying a Danegeld was a mark of shame, that doesn't mean that paying a Danegeld was always the right choice. The payment of a Danegeld could be an incredibly boneheaded decision, and ultimately, it came down to position and posture. Alfred did pay a Danegeld, but he only did that after the army of Wessex put up a fight and made the Danes pay for every shatta with blood. A shat was an Anglo-Saxon coin, by the way. So I'm saying that the Danes had to fight bitterly for every ounce of plunder, not that they had to fight for the right to use the loo. So even though Wessex lost the vast majority of their fights with the Danes in 871, the cost of the campaign for the Danes was steep, and the losses that they encountered were significant enough that they put Halfdan's reign in jeopardy. He lost his co-ruler, Baxeg, and he also lost a bunch of his Jarls while fighting against Alfred and his brother. So as a consequence, at the end of all this, Halfdan was likely all too happy to receive a Danegeld in exchange for leaving. And he had a good reason to want to keep up his end of the bargain. The last thing he wanted was to keep fighting against these strange men who looked like thralls, but fought like Danes. Contrast that with Burgred. According to our records, every time Burgred was faced with a possible conflict with the Danes, he immediately started ponying up the cash to get them to leave. Now, there was a sound strategy behind this, since fighting would potentially weaken his position among his eldermen, who would be upset that their peasants had been wounded or killed. But, by repeatedly not fighting, he was giving the Danes the impression that he was a weak ruler who could be easily dominated. Now, we don't know how he rationalized the payments, 
We don't know if he was afraid of fighting or if he was simply mathing it out and decided that it was cheaper to pay them than fight. But what we can be relatively sure of is that by not fighting, he gave the Danes little reason to worry about what he would do if they didn't hold up their end of the bargain. He was negotiating from a weak position right from the start, and every time he buckled without fighting, his position got weaker. Burgred was doing Danegeld's all wrong. So this time, after paying an exorbitant Danegeld, the Danes didn't even bother to leave his lands. All they did was move a bit to the north and take over another one of his towns, because apparently the new King Rixiga of Northumbria was a bigger threat to Halfdan than King Burgred of Mercia. And can you imagine the scene in King Burgred's court when he got word of this? Burgred was kind of the awkward teenager of the Anglo-Saxon kings. He was twisting himself into knots trying to get people to like him. He'd done everything that was asked of him, and I imagine that he couldn't understand why it was all backfiring so hard. And now, with the Danes residing in Torxy, he must have been wondering what more these people wanted from him. But even with the increased threat posed by Halfdan, apparently, Burgred was either unwilling or unable to raise an army. And there's something here that puzzles me. I feel like the record is leaving out something pretty important, and I guess that is understandable that they're being vague. I mean, this is coming from West Saxon stories primarily, and we're talking about things that are happening in Mercia. But we're still missing a key part. Namely, why was King Burgred sitting on his hands even now? Now, from my perspective, I think there are several possible causes. One was political. Mercia had multiple royal factions, much like Northumbria. So I wonder if he was worried that his eldermen wouldn't answer the call for war. Or perhaps that they would muster, but then abandon him or switch sides at a crucial moment. There could also be a military explanation for this. For example, I wonder if he put up a fight at London, but got his teeth kicked in. The sources regarding the occupation of London are silent with regard to fighting. But if Burgred mustered his army and tried to take back London, or tried to hold London and got kicked out of there, his fyrd might have been weakened to the point where he just wasn't able to oust the Danes from Torxy. He might have just been too weak militarily. Or maybe he simply didn't want to risk his life and the lives of his subjects, and so he thought it would be best to just appease the Danes. It's hard to say, but even though the Danes were sitting in Torxy, instead of fighting, Burgred welcomed the Danish puppets, King Egbert and Archbishop Wolfred, into his kingdom. He was being the very model of a compliant king. And Halfdan was apparently praying to all of the right gods, because things kept turning in his favor. He was encamped in a location that was close enough to East Anglia that apparently they didn't want to rebel anymore. The local king was so compliant that he even welcomed Egbert and Wolfred into Mercia. And he was able to give his men a location to rest before setting out on a campaign to retake Jorvik. Once again, against all odds, everything was coming up Halfdan. And then, after taking a brief breather, Halfdan marshaled his forces and advanced on Jorvik. We don't have any details on the fighting that took place. We don't know if there was one battle or many battles. We don't know how many warriors died. All we know 
is that King Halfdan retook Jorvik. King Rixiga was pushed beyond the Tyne, and that at some point during all of this, King Ekbert died. Though we don't know how. But my thought is that there must have been at least one battle, and probably more than one. And I imagine that the fighting was bitter. I say that because even though Halfdan managed to retake Jorvik, he still lost half of his kingdom to this new king, Rixiga. And based on everything else we know about Halfdan, I simply cannot imagine that he would have given that up without a fight. But whatever happened, Jorvik had been reclaimed. And with Egbert dead, Halfdan would now rule directly as king. There would be no puppet rulers in Jorvik. There would be just him and Archbishop Wolfrid. Yeah, Halfdan brought Wolfrid back north with him and returned him to the Northern Sea. And why not? Wolfrid was an effective tool for controlling the local population. But what I find strange is that the Archbishop was completely at ease with this collaboration. Moreover, judging by the letters that he received from the papacy, apparently the church was also totally okay with this. It's a surprising turn for an institution that was earlier willing to curse British Christians over their haircuts. But given the number of crises that the church was dealing with, dogma probably had to take a back seat to pragmatism. But here's another interesting thing about Halfdan's recapture of Jorvik. When the Danish king ceded the northern half of his former territory to King Rikasiga, they chose a fascinating boundary. The two kingdoms would be split by the river Tyne. The Tyne is an ancient boundary that stretched back to the Celtic times at least. The Romans recognized it, and Emperor Hadrian ordered a great wall to be constructed along it. Far later, during the early Anglo-Saxon times, the mighty kingdoms of Bernicia and Deira were split right along that same river. And although King Athelfrith had first united Bernicia and Deira about 300 years ago, here we are with a return to that ancient British boundary. King Rixiga would reign over old Bernicia, and King Halfdan would reign over the former kingdom of Deira, or as the Danes would call it, Jorvik. After centuries of being ruled as a single kingdom, Northumbria was once again fractured. And it fractured down the same lines that it had since the Celtic days. Old habits die hard. And with his victory secured, Halfdan returned to his encampment at Torxey. And once again, I'm sure that King Burgred was quietly having kittens. Had he not done everything that was asked of him? Why did King Halfdan keep coming back? What did he want now? Well, it's hard to say. Our sources don't line up perfectly. The Chronicle and later records disagree with each other on a whole bunch of stuff. And as a result, scholars have to do some conjecture to even come up with a coherent chronology of this fight. For example, in this episode, I'm largely relying on D.P. Kirby's analysis of the events. But when reading his account, it is clear that he had to discount some sources in order to get to this chronology. The record is muddy as hell, and the confusion in it is understandable. 
We're reading accounts written by scribes far to the south of Britain who only heard about these northern events through word of mouth. But unfortunately, when your sources can't even agree on the what and when, you're pretty much up sh creek when it comes to how and why. So, we don't know why he returned south. But I'd like to hazard a guess. Despite his successes in battle and the payment of Danegelds, the 870s were still turning out to be a really rough time for Halfdan. His men were probably starting to resent how things were turning out, and a Viking king's duty was to bring his warriors plunder. And providing plunder is pretty hard to do when you're retaking your own city. And it was a city that they probably had to fight pretty hard to get. Now if Halfdan was smart, and we have every reason to think that he was, there's no way that he would allow his army to loot his own city. And here's the thing. I'm pretty sure that King Rixiga was smart enough to know that the Danes were coming for him while he was sitting in Jorvik. So he probably took everything of value that wasn't nailed down when he made his retreat north. And that would have left Halfdan with relatively empty pockets, which was a problem because he still needed to pay his army. The Danes weren't fighting for fun here. They were doing this as a profession, and professionals get paid. If Halfdan wanted their services in the future, and if he wanted to keep his shiny new city, he would need to pay his bills. Luckily, there was an ATM just to the south by the name of Burgred. Now in a certain light, Burgred was a perfect client king. He was compliant, pacified, and always willing to do what was asked of him. Halfdan did have reason to possibly want to protect him and bring him under his influence directly. Burgred could be useful. But on the other hand, King Halfdan needed money right now. And Burgred was convenient and available. So, in the winter of 873, King Halfdan of Jorvik and his army returned to their encampment at Torxi. And in response to the Danish demands... Burgred flinched, just like he always did. The Danegeld would be paid. Again. His kingdom was now so financially wrecked that when we look at the Viking hordes from this area, we see evidence that they were hacking pieces of silver off of anything they could find in order to pay the Danes. Mercia was well beyond the breaking point. And Halfdan knew it. And now his men had been paid so they were probably ready for another campaign. And he ordered the march. Though, despite their promises, they weren't going back to Jorvik. They were headed to the southwest, to the heart of Mercia, and the royal burial site of the ancient Mercian kings Athelbald and Wiglaf, and the revered saints Guthlak and Wigstan. They were headed to Repton, it was a well-situated place to set up camp and prepare for his next conquest of Mercia. And there wasn't a damn thing that Burgreg could do about it. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com and you can also join us on Twitter. We're at British Podcast and there's a whole bunch of other communities you can join find links to all of them at the upper right hand corner of the British History Podcast.com. Thanks for listening.